Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. Today we have friend of the pod, Michael Borky, Super Talk Do It All Man, on to talk a little bit of fall camp. Ole Miss and Mississippi State as the Rebels wind down their last week of fall camp and uh, get right inside the uh, week away mark from their season opener. Talk uh, coordinator storylines some quarterback stuff, and a look around the SEC about who might be on the hot seat as well as some other random SEC football topics. Buckle up. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit is located right off Old Taylor Road, less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus. It will sleep eight comfortably. It is gated. It includes amenities such as a a pool, a sauna, tennis courts. It is gated. It will sleep eight comfortably. It is a perfect spot for a weekend getaway in Oxford or maybe just a couple nights passing through in the middle of the week. Whatever the case may be, hotels can be expensive, particularly on big weekends. It's hard to find a place to stay. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered. I know some of you out there want to come to the Mercer game. Yes, it'll be hot, but it's the season opener. And maybe you're looking for a place to stay. This unit is still available for Mercer weekend. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com and book it Today, if you use the promo code Rippy Rights, R-I-P-P-E-E, Rights, R-I-T-E-S, you and you get a hundred bucks off any two nights day. Take advantage of this deal. It is a great place to stay. It is walking distance from the Ole Miss campus, walking distance to the Grove, walking distance to Vaught Hemingway, and it is available for the first home game as well as Vandy and ULM. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. Don't miss out on this. Book your stay today. That is rentthesipoxford.com. This podcast is also brought to you by C Spire. It's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service on the market with C Spire Fiber. The past few years have shown us how important it is to have reliable inter- home internet connection for you and your family. That's why C Spire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. C Spire also prides themselves with the best customer service in the industry. Their customer service is award-winning, local service based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. C Spire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and South Alabama regions. C Spire is proud to announce the release of their brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Go online to cspire.com today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, for one month of free service. You hear that? If you just for listening to this podcast, you get one month of free service and the best internet on the market. Check it out today. Ceasefire customer inspired. All right. Here is Michael Borky on some fall camp storylines. All right. We now welcome on Super Talks Do It All Man, Michael Borky, Sports Talk Mississippi, three to six every Monday through Friday. Checked in with you. I think the first night of SEC Media Day is about five, six weeks ago. We now sit here on the Eve, Eve, Eve. Most people listening to this will be Eve, Eve. This is just bad content. It's Wednesday before week zero. Um, football season is back. Um, it's kind of crazy how quickly it goes. You know, when I was a reporter, I always thought fall camp dragged on. And I was like, damn, 10 days in. You still have like two and a half or three weeks sometimes before the season. You're kind of out of stuff to write about. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm doing it part time now, but it's seemingly gone a lot faster. Maybe it's because Ole Miss has had no shortage of storylines, but fall camp or preseason camp is not dragged on like I felt it has in years past. Have y'all experienced the same thing? What's kind of your opinion on that? 
Yeah, it is kind of moving faster. I think some of it has to do with the the conference realignment crap uh, that has been going on. And it's I've gotten to a point now where uh, I guess there's reporting out of the San Francisco Chronicle that Stanford, Cal, and SMU are finalizing a deal to join the ACC in football and men's and women's basketball. And that that was interesting for a little while for me with Oregon and Washington and that kind of stuff. Now I just, I find it so incredibly stupid. Stanford and Cal in the ACC to me makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. You cannot rationalize it to me at all. And I'm not interested in it anymore with football. So close. It's like, okay, this, this was nice when we had nothing else to do, but now that it starts in just a couple of days, you're all a bunch of idiots. This makes no sense whatsoever. I could not possibly care less. Florida State and Clemson are on their way out of the ACC anyway. The second they can get out, it's all a joke. Give me football. And I haven't really done a ton of conference realignment content on this podcast. I dove into it right after kind of the initial wave of this latest round of uh, realignment and, you know, the Pac-12 essentially collapsing. I dug into it with Chase like a little bit on a Sunday podcast. But I don't. it doesn't really pique my interest because – I don't really have anything unique to add to it that everyone else is not already reacting to that. The fact that it's kind of turning into NFL light. I hate the fact that, you know, you're losing all of these traditional rivalries and kind of the regionality element of college football because everyone is chasing as much money as possible really on just the football end with no other collegiate sports in mind. I don't really have like the doomsday take of like, this is going to ruin college football. I'm still going to watch the games. I guess a bunch of, uh, programs that care being in the same conference is better than having, you know, just dead weight uh, littered across the regionality of it. But it just hasn't piqued my interest because I kind of shared the same typical opinions that everyone else shares that it's just kind of sad and that we're kind of losing what made college football unique just because people are chasing money. Can't really blame them for it. But, you know, cable TV being what it is and the power it had in college football for so long, I suppose this is inevitable. But again, I just don't have a ton to add to it. It just kind of depresses me. Um, and that's that's really the only take I have on the matter. Yeah, and I'm with you. So I'm glad that football is actually here because I, I don't want to try to manufacture, other than what I just said, any kind of give a damn about the ACC adding teams, the Atlantic Coast Conference adding teams that literally are positioned on the Pacific coast. When you are on Cal's campus on the right day, you can see the Pacific ocean and they will be playing in the Atlantic coast conference. It's all stupid, but I'm with you. I think that same thing with NIL and the portal. Now that it frustrates people, the portal frustrates me. Uh, Players making money does not frustrate me at all. But as I say all the time, the, the fact that a guy that signed with Ole Miss in December had more freedom to pick his team in April than Patrick Mahomes does with his $500 million contract is a serious problem. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever for players in a three-year span to have six free agency windows if they want to take those six windows, whereas the aforementioned Patrick Mahomes, who has a half a billion dollar contract as the most recognizable athlete in in the country, maybe. I mean, you know, you can debate that, I guess. But either way, the the best quarterback in the NFL is more restricted than a defensive back that has never played a snap of college football before. And, And that's it. That's a huge, huge, huge problem to me. But even with that existing, even with the conference realignment happening, 
college football is too important to too many people to fail. I think it's too big to fail. The NFL is too big to fail too, but college football fits in that window. There are Ole Miss fans by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, if it's hundreds of thousands, that have endured far worse as a fan than a player transferring after signing in December and transferring, uh, what was it, after spring? I can't even remember his name. I just know that Ole Miss signed a kid and he transferred a few oh, months later. That dude's name? I, can't I can't remember, remember his name. It, it doesn't matter. He's gone and, you know, whatever. You Ole Miss fans have dealt with so much worse. So, so, so much worse, and you're still here. Why are you still here? Because Ole Miss football is ingrained in the fabric of your being. Now, I think that things are happening that could lose younger generations, and they need to start addressing those kind of things. But right now, Ole Miss, you're not losing Ole Miss fans. If, if you haven't lost Ole Miss fans by now, the portal and, and money is not losing Ole Miss fans uh, tomorrow either. So when the ball kicks off, all the discourse and all the negativity is gone because this is an interesting as hell football team. And even if it wasn't, everybody listening to this is probably still watching anyway because you have before when the, when it was much worse, as I said. And the but like this is kind of the last season of recognizable college football potentially for forever or until the next iteration of this comes around. Like we'll get a traditional college football season, but just next year is going to be so different from a viewership and watching standpoint. I agree. I think it's too big to fail, particularly if you're a pro fan of a program of like the Habs. Like, I, I don't know, like the Washington state fan out there today or the Cal football fan, or if those exist, like seeing your football program going from like a power five conference to God knows what will end up happening to them. I could see how that would be. A hell of a lot different, but like Ole Miss is going to be fine in the whole realignment scape of, scope of things. And maybe that's why it doesn't pique my interest other than just like general depression about the direction the sport's going. But like I also have questions about like how that's actually going to work. Like you just mentioned the absurdity of the ACC having two teams in California in it. But like in basketball, like the ACC sometimes does Thursday, Saturday games, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe they're a Friday, Monday league in college basketball. I can't remember. But, like, what? how is that going to work? Like, does Cal go to Clemson to play a road basketball game on a Saturday and then they play Big Monday at home against someone else? Like, the, the NFL and, like, the NBA and MLB don't even travel like that. Yes, they go all across the country, but, like, like in MLB, you have a West Coast road trip. In the NBA, you have West Coast road trips. Like, this is heading to yeah, a – you'll be in Phoenix and in L.A. and then Golden State for three road games, and then you're back home. And then even like the football teams, even though you're only playing one game a week, sometimes they'll have back-to-back on the West Coast, so they'll stay out there and practice for a week and go to the next one. Like, point being, the pro sports leagues don't even do this. So that shows you what absurdity we've reached in college football. It's like there's going to be a level of travel in the other sports that aren't football. I guess you could lump football into it. That's just going to be almost like incomprehensibly stupid. Like, I'm actually in a weird way fascinated to see how that's actually going to work if it comes to fruition. Like, what do you do with the Pacific Coast schools in the ACC? Do you have like a, a, a road, like a block of where they play four straight road games in college basketball and then come back home for four more? Like, I, they, they're going to have to do something about that. And like, I guess if there's one element I'm fascinated in is like the dynamics and like the, the actual logistics of how that would work. Yeah, and, and I guess they'll, they'll have to figure that out. They probably didn't have any idea of how that was going to look when they signed on to these things. I mean, do you honestly think Oregon sat down and was like, ooh, we want to join the Big Ten, but ooh, let's iron out the tra-. – of course. And, and so I, I listened to an interview today uh, with the Jack Swarbrick, Notre Dame's AD. He was on the Dan Patrick Show today. 
and they shared a three minute clip that's worth watching, but, but I, I listened to the entire interview and um, he called the current state of college sports, a disaster uh, said that it's not them being greedy, but it is about money, which is an interesting way to frame that, I guess. But um, I think it's a hypocritical he, way. It's definitely greed, but sure, I guess. It's just yeah. And talked about how, you know, decisions were made, you know, without the student athletes in mind and, and he doesn't want them to, become employees because it's all part of the, he, he wants them to still have the college experience and those kind of things. Well, into his credit, he blamed himself along with everybody else, but you guys are what created this push to give athletes more. It's your fault. And, and I don't blame you for signing these massive television deals and taking more money in than you ever have and stuff, because it, if you're running something that requires money to run, you're going to want to make money to run it and, and just typical business stuff. But when you started paying coaches 20, 30, $40 million buyouts and, and you had these contracts worth tens of millions of dollars in these TV deals worth what they were worth, and then you started the conference realignment thing a while ago, and the only reason why teams were added to conferences was because of television money, you lost the ability to say, the players shouldn't get anything when you did everything to financially benefit yourself. And so you, you created this, this push. And I saw what, I forget what publication did it, but there, there's a survey out um, where I think it was the athletic, right. That did the, the fan survey where it's like 67% now of college sports fans are okay with or support players getting a cut of the money that is generated by the school. It, it was a very, surprised that's not higher, but, but it used to be, they, they do the survey often apparently. And that number has grown dramatically over the last couple of years. Sure. And so it's, it's these people's fault. All, all the people that are doing this conference realignment stuff also bemoan. Yeah, but we don't want players making decisions based on money. It's like, but, but you did. And because you did, you created, I don't know, you, you created the system that you hate by making the decisions that you did. And so if college football does fail, if this starts falling apart and, uh, you know, the, the legal wins happen in California and Pennsylvania and players become employees, uh, the volleyball teams are going to start getting cut. And then these same people that made these decisions are going to cry foul about how terrible it is when they were the ones that made the decisions that led to that being the case. If you make athletes employees, you're going to lose teams that quote unquote nobody cares about, and that that that's just a shame. But it's their fault that it happened, and they're going to be the ones that cry about it when it does happen. Watch. It reminds me of that scene in the campaign where Cam Brady makes the inappropriate phone call to the per, the people's home phones, and he's like, "This is unacceptable. We can't have this." And the reporter's like, "But Senator, you made the call." It's like, like yeah. they're all like, you know, walking around talking about how terrible it is and doing interviews every turn. It's like, dude, you did this. Like, you can talk about how terrible it is, but this is your doing. And so we're entering this one final year. Like, I guess if you were writing nationally for college football, I'd probably think of a way to do some sort of column of like calling this the last year of nostalgia, because that's really going to be it. We're going to have this one more year of normalcy, and this is all going to look so drastically different. I guess kind of the last thing on this topic before we dive into some old Miss Mississippi State preseason camp stuff is like i loved the final weekend of the regular season rivalry week or whatever right like egg bowls out of the way most of the time on thursday night 
you usually kind of get like the apple cup or something on Friday and then a bunch of robbery games on Saturday in like 2026, we're going to have like four of those games. And then it's just going to be a bunch of like season finales, which is fine. It'll still be entertaining and I'll still watch, but it's just going to be very weird that you don't get, you know, bedlam in the apple cup. And I guess for the time being, we're still going to get Florida, Florida state, but like some of these traditional rivalries, and it's just going to be kind of like another week. And that's going to be, very, very bizarre. I think the first couple of times that we go through the final week of the regular season, this new week of college football. And then the second piece of that is like, they've tried to compensate for it by like cramming fake rivalries down our throat. And this is even in this, this current era of realignment. I mean, they've tried so hard to make Missouri, Arkansas a thing or A&M LSU a thing or how Arkansas A&M a thing. And it's just not like, I watch no. those games because they're SEC football games, but I'm not like, Oh hell yeah. Like, this is the Iron Bowl light. It's Arkansas and AM. Like, I just don't care. And I, I hate that we're losing that piece of it. It's going to be very weird to watch that the first couple of times that this new look college football happens the last week of the regular season. Yeah. And what's interesting, like next year, I'm actually really excited about the expanded playoff, but I, I'm I'm with you at for every LSU and Georgia and Ohio State out there with, with their millions of fans combined, there are millions of people who are not fans of the football factories. There are there not as many, of course, in the state, but there are passionate Southern Miss fans here in this oh, state. For but, sure. but there are a, a couple few thousand people that go see Delta State play on Saturday. I mean, college football, the, the beauty of it is not Ohio State. And I've been to Ohio State games. I got a picture of Ohio State on my wall up here. The atmosphere is incredible. It is a great thing to experience. But the beauty of college football is not Ohio State. It's that nine-year-old Michael Borky and his dad can wake up and, and go to the Furman game and watch Furman play Georgia Southern at the time. And that's that's how I grew to love the game so much. And the path that we're going down worries me that there's going to be less and less experiences for people like me who didn't grow up on Ole Miss football, like a lot of you did. So you you guys don't uh, understand that perspective. At least some of you don't, because you grew up on big-time football. It was always your thing. I I didn't, and there are so many people like me. And the more we get away from the essence of the sport, the more or the less, I should say, that I'm going to like it. I like the fact that Appalachian State can go to Michigan and beat Michigan. And yeah, those games suck. Mercer has no chance at beating Ole Miss. None. Ole Miss is going to win that game by 70 points if they want to. They could win by 125 if they wanted to. They're not going to, but they could. So I understand that those games stink and and fans don't like them. But then there's that one Saturday. There's that one Saturday where the Citadel goes up to Columbia after Steve Spurrier retires and beats South Carolina. And how cool those kind of moments are in college football where Boise State beats Oklahoma in Arizona in the Fiesta Bowl, where Tulane can can beat USC in the Cotton Bowl. If we go where people think we're going, which is this like mini NFL, all of those magical moments are going to just be history. They won't happen anymore because you're going to eliminate the FCS games. Hell, you're... Some people think it's going to get to the point where you don't have any non-Power 5 games anymore, or should I say Power 4, where you're only going to play games in this little bubble that they're going to create. There are people that think that that's where that's headed. If that's where that's headed, television viewers served really well. But I think the 
the root of college football will lose a lot of the magic that draws people like me into it and then hooks me forever. I agree. It's going to be, and you know, even the financial viability of programs like that, like how does that get affected when they don't get their buy game? So I don't a know. A lot of them would fold. Yeah. And like, not even just that, like then when that folds, then it's kind of the athletic department. And it's just, it's, I don't know. It's wild to think about. There's a lot of moving parts, but I guess for now, for the next, you know, 200 ish days, we still have this yeah. last semblance of college football. As we record this Ole Miss is about 10 days away from their opener against Mercer is I was kind of alluding to earlier when we first started recording of this fall camp or preseason camp hasn't really drugged by like ones in years past. Maybe it's just because there's more storylines. I mean, Ole Miss has had some off the field issues with suspensions and things like that. There's been, you know, new coordinators. We got to hear Pete Golding talk for like 17 minutes the other day, which I found to be very fascinating. Probably one of the, I don't know, Mount Rushmore of actually interesting uh, local media opportunities over the last three, four years. I've, I've kind of since start watching them on YouTube instead of being there for them. Um, I guess there's a quarterback competition. I think barring something completely shocking, Jackson Dart will be the team starting quarterback. But even going into the year, you still have these two capable guys behind him. So what does that look like if he struggles or doesn't play well? It's just flown by to me. And I guess as we sit 10, 10 days away from the season, what is kind of your biggest storyline or thing you're following with Ole Miss? I think for me, it's probably the leash of the quarterback first and then what the defense actually looks like second. But I'll kick it to you. What are you kind of following? Yeah, I think Neil made an excellent point on, on one of their shows recently when he said on September 2nd, he expects Spencer Sanders to be on the roster. But he said, yeah. you will not have three happy quarterbacks. You'll have one happy quarterback. You'll have one content with, with Walker Howard. And then you're going to have one that's not happy. And what will that dynamic create as a season goes on where Jackson Dart plays? And let's say he plays well. Let's say everything that's coming out of camp is really good, is true. It's actually true where Dart's improved and he's the leader of the team and he's taken that step forward and he's having a really good year. And when they're blowing out Mercer and they're blowing out what I think will happen, it, relatively speaking, Tulane, and Kiffin gives those reps to Walker Howard, what kind of dynamic will that create with Spencer Sanders in that quarterback room? Because you can't keep all three of them happy for 13 weeks this season. It is impossible. If Jackson Dart somehow loses this job, he is not going to be happy for 13 weeks this season. When Spencer Sanders loses just this job officially, even though I don't expect an announcement, he's not going to be happy for 13 weeks. It's not going to happen. So how do you handle that? And what happens there knowing that you've got somebody in that room that's that's showing up to work pissed off? That <laughs> that is something that I'm I'm paying the closest attention to, I think, is is what happens to the loser. Well, and if it does end up being Jackson Dart, looking at it through the viewpoint of your... Do we still have to do the if thing? <laughs> no. I mean, it's just one of those things, though. Like, you never know, like, 100%. I mean, I'm about 99.99. It feels so stupid, doesn't it? Yes, it, it because does. Because everything... So, so Neil and Chase go to practice. They, 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 they write a practice report or, or observations, and it's like, Jackson Dart took the majority of the reps of the ones, and he looked good, and the team loves him and all that stuff. Like, the, I, I don't know if they've written anything besides, like, hey, 
you know, sometimes like, hey, Sanders had a good day. However, it's Jackson Dart's football team. Everything you hear, every everybody I've talked to is like, yep, it's Jackson Dart's football team. The, the open scrimmage. Dart took the snaps of the ones in the first half, and then they treated it just like a preseason game where he kept his helmet off and hung out during the second half. Everything that comes out of camp, both in media viewing and like the, the insider information, and then the obvious tells you it's Jackson Dart's quarterback. It's his football team. Everything except for the head coach. And so every time Lane Kiffin talks and he doesn't commit, it gives me doubt. Because I want to sit here and say, I mean, yes, it's Dart. Everybody knows it's Dart. It's been Dart. Dart knows it's Dart. The whole team knows it. They all talk about it like it is. And so what are we even doing here playing into the game? But I, I would feel stupid listening to Lane Kiffin say, I'm not ready to name a starter and talk about both of them and me just dismiss the head coach's words completely. So I don't know what to make. I don't know what how to handle it or what to do about it. I think it's just Kiffin being Kiffin. I have a somewhat educated belief that I think Jackson Dart knows that Jackson Dart is going to start the year as the team starting quarterback. And again, I think I may have mentioned this like quickly in passing with Weldon the last time we recorded a podcast, but I think I made a joke of basically like it could be Jackson Dart versus you or me. And it's some, or well, I guess making it more realistic, some walk on or that I don't know, Jackson Dart versus. Kincaid Dent. I know Kincaid Dent wasn't a walk-on to where it's like, guy, right, this isn't really a competition. It may not even been framed as a competition. I think Kiffin still week one was like, we'll see who the best man for the job is. You know, um, you know, Borky's really been coming along and we'll just see who who plays and who kind of separates himself. It's like, all right, dude, like cut the charade. I think and it's, it's totally his prerogative not to announce it. I, I don't know if he thinks he gains an advantage or what the case may be or trying to keep people happy. Like, yeah, exactly. It's not really an advantage. Maybe it's a, it's a roster advantage to keep them as happy as long as possible. I, I don't really know. It's his prerogative. I'm not necessarily annoyed by it, but I do think it's just Lane Kiffin being Lane Kiffin. I, I don't think the fact that he won't name one breeds any less certainty into my mind as to who will start the year at quarterback. But like getting back to your point of like, there's not going to be three happy quarterbacks on the roster. There may end up being two is if it does shake out like what we're talking around, what seems to be a virtual certainty, how it is, it's it makes the most sense. Like no duh that one of them's not going to be happy, but I, I I guess I have less like I don't know if it's less intriguing. It's just well the Spencer Sanders thing never made sense from the time he got here. So like this in some ways seeming incredibly predictable. Whereas like say Sanders had just gotten here and lit the world on fire and beat out Jackson Dart and. Howard is presumably the quarterback of the future number two, and you have a pissed off Jackson Dart on the sidelines. That kind of raises eyebrows of like, okay, how does that work? How would that go? Would he have even made it to the season still at Ole Miss if that were the case? Where this is just like, okay, this kind of ended up playing out like we thought. I, I don't really have much sympathy for Spencer Sanders if he does become that guy that's the odd man out and upset because he had to know that the probability of that being the case when he got here was greater than it not being. Yeah, and if you know you're four years in a full summer into college, still with any kind of academic hangup, you only have yourself to blame there. Yeah. Um, and he left a place where he's a four-year starter. And again, I think some of the academic stuff maybe limited his options. From everything I've heard, I don't have anything really confirmed. We're just kind of spitballing there. But it's just weird. You go from a four-year starter to a place where you're going to sit the bench last year. I've just I don't have we ever seen a career play out like that. Not off the top of my head. Maybe there is one uh, somewhere uh, around there. But, um, you know, part of me wonders if Kiffin's kind of been doing this in part. Part of me wonders in part. Great sentence, Mike. 
um, to, to keep him around because Matt Corral got hurt, played hurt because he's, he's just, he's tough dude. And then Jackson Dart played hurt last year as well. Part of me wonders if this has been kind of an effort to, to keep Sanders around to not, if he would have been able to academically, which who knows when Iowa state loses their starting quarterback to a gambling scandal to avoid him wanting to to go transfer with two weeks out in the season and, and check that out, if he's even able to do that. I, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. But I, I wonder if you, you don't want injuries, knock on wood, Jackson Dart is healthy for 12 games plus one, or hell, maybe plus two, or three or four. Uh, but you, you want him to stay healthy all year, of course. But you can't, if you're Kiffin, run your offense to full efficacy and not fear of Jackson Dart getting hurt because they like to run the quarterback some. Quarterbacks that run some get hit, and guys that get hit get hurt. And so I, part of me has wondered, you know, maybe Kiffin's doing this to, to keep Sanders, uh, to av- avoid losing him, knowing that he is the better option should Dart get hurt than Howard for this season. I don't, I, know if it's, I don't know if there's truth to it. It's just something that I think about a lot. We'll get back to Michael Borky in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is now brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've had before. It's made with real brewed tea, packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol, and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that go down goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted tea turns up on any occasion. Hell yeah, I added that part. Especially when you're cheering for your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate the game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experiences. Twisted Tea, a drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. After a summer hiatus, Skybox is back. They're ready to full go for football season. They're already posting analysis on the site. To celebrate the return of football season, if you use the promo code FOOTBALL23, you get 50% off any package now through the first kick of the NFL, that Thursday night game coming up in two weeks. And also, if you use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, you get 20% off any purchase. Just go online to skyboxsportspicks.com, find a picks package, and try it for a day, a week, a month. I recommend going with the year-long all-access pass, college football, pro football, whatever the case may be. Pick your package. They'll send your picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet each week, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. Make your football season a profitable one this year. Don't lose money based off your own liens. Go with the professionals, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Rights subscriber, it's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, it's three six-ounce bacon-wrapped fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting for 20 bucks. It's prime grilling season. Summer's winding down. Go take advantage of that now. Then go find all your own favorites at LB's. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of sausages, fresh seafood, different cuts of meat. I like the tri-tips. The filet burgers are always a favorite. Go find your own favorites at the best butcher shop in the world, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Michael Borky. 
No, it makes sense. And I did that thought exercise a couple of weeks ago in the storyline of the uh, Sanders kind of academic snafu popped up. But like the thing that nobody's and maybe I just missed it and I haven't been paying close enough attention. I don't know what the case is, but no one has been able to explain to me if and how he would ever be able to become a grad transfer. This academic issue aside, again, I don't know what it was. I'm guessing and kind of trying to color in the lines here, but I don't think that was like the determining factor in whether he was able to become a drag, grad transfer. No one has been able to explain to me how he could become a grad transfer to Ole Miss and that there was ever a realistic pass to doing so. So it seems like from day one, the most realistic aspect of all this is like, could he have gone anywhere anyway? You know what I mean? That's what I always came yeah. back to when trying to play out the thought exercise of, is Kiffin dragging this out to keep three quarterbacks on the roster? Because we've seen that in years past. But I, I just I, I, it's never made sense to me. The math is not added up on on Sanders be, having the option to transfer again. That that piece of it is never computed for me. Especially if uh, what is rumored is true that his options after leaving Oklahoma State ended up being very limited. If that is in fact true, no idea if it is or not. Uh, but getting him into school or finding a place to go may not have been as easy as you would think somebody that's been in college for four years. If that is in fact true, then it stands to reason that maybe transferring out might not be the easiest thing uh, to do either, but either way, I think that most people expect them to be improved at quarterback. And so maybe that leads, you asked about things that I'm interested in and thought exercises. Lane Kiffin seems really freaking happy. And I can't figure out why, and because that's not him. I mean, this is his fourth year at Ole Miss. Has he ever talked as positively in his um, uh, monotone and whisper in press conferences? But when you ignore the tone and the I don't want to be here attitude and you hear his words, he doesn't. he hasn't talked about his previous teams this way. He's talked about players from previous teams this way. But I can't decide if it's maybe like, you know, personal stuff, like like he's gotten his life together and, and his daughter's in school and like he's just a happy guy now. Like things are working out and he's good. And he's got the $9 million salary and he sold his house in Boca or something and he's going to go buy a new beach house and like just life is good. Or does he feel differently about this team? It, does he love this team the way it sounds like he loves this team? And the third thing is, why am I reading this far into a coach's press conference and going into a football season? Uh, but he's very different from, from last year to this year. It's a totally different attitude from the head coach talking about his team compared to this time last year. Totally different. It's a fascinating it's kind of minor subplot, if you want to call it that, because like I agree, and I think part of it, it stems from a couple of different things. He had a note in his Tuesday press conference. I guess that was yesterday. It may have been the Wednesday. It doesn't matter. Um, he got asked a question about kind of this team versus last year's team in terms of where they're at week one. And he pretty much openly admitted that he felt like from a depth and readiness to play week one standpoint, that this team was much further along than last year's team, which is interesting to me because tougher schedule. So what does that actually compute to in terms of wins and losses? But I think he probably feels better about the team and the roster across the board. He has to feel good about having success on the high school recruiting front and seemingly building some kind of some sort of organic momentum outside of, you know, snagging a bunch of, you know, mostly impactful transfers in the offseason every year. He just got a big raise and he's richer. So I think it's probably a combination of a lot of those things. It seems like that day of giving that the Grove Collective had the other day uh, went pretty well. 
I imagine that probably doesn't annoy him by any stretch of the imagination that there's this big public initiative to raise money primarily for football, but yes, also other sports. That probably doesn't exactly make him mad. He's probably somewhat happy about that. And then there's the element of just, is this August Lane Kiffin? Because while I agree, he doesn't talk about his team the same way as he did last year. Remember last year during August, it was the whole, I needed Oxford more than it needed me thing. Yeah. Uh, kind of new guy doing yoga, that type of stuff. And then when jobs opened up, it was like, well, what happened to August Lane Kiffin? I wonder if a piece of it is that and in combination with the fact that I do genuinely think he probably feels better about this team and this roster than he did a year ago. And it, it stands to reason that, that that would be the case, right? That he feels better because of two main reasons. It, he very clearly, and if you listen to Charlie Weiss Jr., I know you did, um, they are very satisfied with the quarterback room and the talent in it compared to last year. But it, listening to Weiss Jr., they're very satisfied with Jackson Dart. The incumbent starter has apparently done what they were hoping that he would do with an offseason. Now, it doesn't matter until the games are played. We'll see if he is a better decision maker. We'll see if downfield accuracy does improve some. It wasn't near as bad statistically as people think it was. Going from Matt Corral to him was, was a pretty steep drop-off. Corral was great at throwing the deep ball. Dart was not as bad vertically as people say that he was. Not good enough, don't get me wrong. Needs to be better. But he wasn't as bad as some people think that he was. But either way. So you've improved at the most important position on the field. Regardless of who the starter is, you're, you've gotten better at starter, you've gotten better at backup, regardless of who it is. You're, you're better, at least according to them. And you I wonder better at third and fourth string, too. There's there's a bunch of them. Yeah, One of them's like 17, but it, there's a bunch of them. And they're about to get a commitment from a, a four-star. So I mean, just keep on bringing in quarterbacks. Why not? Um, he, he's a doomsday prepper, but but he really needs somebody to throw those canned beans, you know? Um, just stockpiling them in, in a safe somewhere underground. But uh, So that, it, it's got to feel good as a coach to be better at the most important position on the field. And then Pete Golding. That's where I was headed. That is, he's got to feel really comfortable about the difference in the other side of the ball between this year and last year. Not only with who's running it, but also probably personnel as well. But the way everybody has described Pete Golding, both people that that cover the team that are at practices like Neil and Chase, and what they say about him, but listen to the players talk about him as well. You know, players don't say much, but when, when they talk about Pete Golding, it's different. And their eyes kind of light up a little bit. And and they don't answer the questions the same when it's about Pete versus other stuff. And I, I can't help but wonder if Lane Kiffin's very satisfied with the hire and, and how that's going. Recruiting's obviously going very well, but the, the way the other side of the ball is being run, I would assume, would make a coach feel really, really good going into a season as opposed to last year where personnel question marks running a three, two, six didn't know if he could handle it on his own, that kind of stuff. I agree. That's where I was kind of headed for the last piece of it too, is look, this is all going to be determined by wins and losses and how they perform. Cause if Pete Golding's defenses get shredded, um, for the first, you know, four real opponents they play for the se- play the season, you know, as popular as he is in August, people are going to be like, I can't believe they hired this bum, bad hire, whatever. And just that's kind of how the cycle goes. But I do think there is something to that because before the A&M game last year, um, Kiffin got asked a question about DJ Durkin, who, whatever you think of DJ Durkin, objectively good defensive coordinator. And what he did with that 2021 Ole Miss defense was a pretty remarkably good coaching job. 
Whereas he got asked a question about it. He's like, yeah, we should have, we would have loved to have kept um, Durkin, but we got outbid or whatever the quote was, if you recall that. Um, and then just the sheer way he handled the, and this is not a criticism, the way he handled the way they got Pete Golding. Like they didn't fire Chris Partridge and then go search for a defensive coordinator. They kind of had the wandering eye. Like, is there an upgrade option available? Okay, sweet. Let's hire Pete Golding. Let's not fire Chris Partridge, but, you know, force him out the door in that way. And so I think there was probably some uncertainty that maybe was not covered or talked about enough last year about how Kiffin felt about having an asset and an experienced defensive coordinator on the other side of the football, which he definitely had in Durkin, which he definitely has in Pete Golding and which he did not have as dynamic as a recruiter of his is and may turn into a great defensive coordinator or hell head coach one day. I don't know what the future holds for Chris Partridge, but not nearly his experience. And for a guy who doesn't deal with that side of the football being Kiffin, probably somewhat of a lack of trust and whatever happens this year, I imagine his level of trust with Pete Golding, particularly since he's worked for him before, but also his accolades, his resume, and what he's doing in recruiting is greater than his trust in Chris Partridge in August of 2022. And that's probably uh, speaks to the larger point that you got to earlier about Kiffin sounding different. Yeah, I am incredibly impressed with, with Pete Golding. Now, he hadn't coached a game yet. Um, it's always been unfair, the, the criticism that Alabama fans have given him and my mentions on Saturday. I knew what I was doing when I tweeted what I tweeted about how Pete doesn't need an A on his chest to, to get a five-star player. And Alabama fans jumped in there. Well, he's so good at turning a five-star player into a three-star player. And it's like the second I saw that response, I saw a highlight of Will Anderson running through a running back in a preseason game, running through him and, and knocking the running back into the quarterback for a sack. And it's like, he didn't turn that guy into a three-star player, but those people are in for a slap in the face, whether it happens this year or when Saban retires, that their standards are so impossibly high, but also they, they compare, like one guy said, well, Pete Golding caused other teams to not fear Alabama anymore. It's like, Dude, he coordinated a national championship winning defense. What the hell are you talking about? And, and the game has changed so much from when Kirby Smart was there and they were invincible to, to now. It's a totally different game. And I don't expect Pete Golding to have top 10 defenses annually, depending on what your favorite stat category is, whether it's efficiency or points per possession or whatever. But when you compare him to the standard of today and teams today, he was very, very, very good to great at his job at Alabama. Just because... Kirby Smart was better when people still ran the I formation doesn't mean that he was bad. And so that narrative was always kind of stupid anyway. But the ability to come into Ole Miss, hadn't coached a game yet, th that, that's something that we have to see first. But but to come in and, and build the relationships that he has so quickly and to win, not only to build the relationships on his team and, and to win his team over, again, listen to the players talk about it. All players love their coach. It seems like they talk about him differently. Maybe I'm just looking at it through certain lens glasses, I suppose. But the relationships that he's built in the state of Mississippi and the ability to get into the rooms and basically flip a state when it comes to where the defensive linemen are going. I mean, Ole Miss has struggled to sign quality defensive linemen consistently for as long as I've been here. And Mississippi State's done a better job in the state of Mississippi of getting the better defensive linemen. 
Ole Miss has three of the top four players in the state, all of which are on the defensive line, two fours and a five. That That's Pete Golding. If Chris Partridge returned, if they, if they didn't make a change, is Ole Miss currently sitting with two four and a five-star defensive lineman from Mississippi committed right now? No shot. At least I don't think there is. So I, I'm thoroughly impressed so far, haven't coached a game yet, with, with what Pete Golding has done and the returns on that investment uh, are extremely impressive. Yeah, the recruiting aspect of it is already working out as evidence of getting Cam Franklin uh, commitment on Saturday. And like the last thing on like the Golding aspect of it too, of like, I feel like there's like, and maybe it's just because me and like the way my brain processes time and who is who and who is where five, six years ago, there's this idea that they were rolling under Kirby Smart and then um, at Alabama's defensive coordinator and then Golding took over and things just slowly deteriorated. Like that's not really what happened at all. Um, there were two years of Jeremy Pruitt, who they were a great defense both of those years. But, I mean, I saw Houston not be awesome with Ed Orgeron talent for two years. Not that Jeremy Pruitt was a bad defensive coordinator and couldn't recruit. Hell, he's not coaching in college football because of how willing he was to recruit. But, like, there was that two-year transition. And just the sheer fact that he took over for Jeremy Pruitt and not Kirby Smart, I think sometimes kind of gets lost in the – um, history of things. And again, he just, he wasn't a bad defensive coordinator. It just kind of wasn't really the standard. They also changed the way they play offense. And then the tempo thing really took shape across college football offensively, not just with how Alabama decided to play offense. There were just a lot of different factors and I get it. Alabama expectations are sky high. I just, that seems like a very smart dude in terms of talking football and strategy and he's getting good players to come in and play for him or is off to hell to start at Ole Miss. And, you know, as complicated as we make this game sometimes, I, what else can you do? Like, if you get great players and you can't coach them, a la Ed Orgeron, it doesn't work out. If you don't have talent, but you're a pretty good coach, you can kind of operate on the margins. Ultimately, your day will probably come. If you do both, you're probably going to be successful. I, I, I don't What is the element of that you wouldn't be successful doing those two things, getting good players to play for you and seemingly being a pretty good defensive strategic coach? Um, I mean, that's how he got the Alabama job, the whole, like, whiteboard story with uh, Saban or whatever. And he's like, I'm not letting you leave because that was so impressive type of thing. I think he probably needed a little bit of a fresh start. And, you know, I don't know if they have the talent to do it. I'm worried about linebacker and a couple other different places this year. But it seems like they're in a much better place defensively and with who's at the helm running it than they were a year ago. It's probably not a guy that's going to jump after a year either, which helps too. Yeah. Uh, you got the family ties here and and things like that. And we've talked about it before. Uh, I think that they're – whether or not this is true, I don't know. It, it, it feels like there is uh, – a line of thinking where if Kiffin let's pretend for a second that Kiffin gets the, I don't know, the chargers job, just he goes off to the NFL in a situation where not a single Ole Miss fan bemoans him leaving for the NFL. Cause it's an upgrade and, and everybody will wave and say, thank you lane on the way out the door. So a very happy exit for Lane Kiffin. They, they win 10 games this year in the sugar bowl and the chargers fire their coach and, and lane takes the chargers job and everybody is very happy sticking around and being the guy down the hall who has worked his ass off to get all these great players is, is a really good spot to be in if you want to be a head coach in the SEC. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. It, and he's accomplished enough to be in the conversation should that ever happen and Kiffin leaves. Like, he would yep. be in the mix. It would not be a, oh, no, they're not turning it over to this coordinator. It's just not – he's not in, in the running. He would absolutely be in the running. Whether it happened or not, who the hell knows. But he would be in the conversation from the moment the news broke. And we've got to see it first, of course, that, you know, cart before the horse and all that. But yeah. I do like it. You mentioned the the influx of talent. I, I like 
what they've done in the portal, not just in terms of talent, like, yes, it, on paper, they've improved talent-wise and depth-wise, but if you're going to have a lot of volatility and roster turnover, the way that they're structured on defense, I think, is impressive when you look at what kind of guys they are. Now, I don't know about their individual character. They could be the worst guys on earth or the best guys on earth. I don't know. But experienced guys. I mean, I, I, this is an offensive player, but still, Caden Priestcorn, if I saw correctly, he's got a wedding ring on his finger. Like, like he's married, not just uh, about two weeks before camp. So he's not As just a son around your does age. Does he really? Oh, your awesome. son's age. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Good for him, man. It's it's exciting. And so he he's he's an adult man. Stefan Wynn, I think this will be his sixth season recording stats in the power five. His sixth season doing it. Uku's played a metric ton of football himself. Monty Montgomery's played a ton of football. Gene Baptiste, I think, was a 2018 recruit, right? Didn't he visit Ole Miss for the 2018 class? I think I believe is that is did. correct. But so, so when you look around at this depth chart, these John Saunders played a ton of football. Uh, the, the guys that they need to produce on defense that were not on the team a year ago are guys that have played a lot of football, and you would hope, because of their age, are more mature and able to come into a situation and and the acclimation period is still a thing, but it, it shouldn't be as difficult for a 23-year-old, I think Josh Harris is 23, like a 22 or 23-year-old like Josh Harris to come in and kind of figure stuff out and, and be a consummate pro because at that age, it's a grown man. It's not like a 19-year-old that just got kicked off the team at Texas A&M coming in and having the same problems. These are largely, on defense, a bunch of adults, a bunch of guys that are of legal drinking age that – apparently are married with children that, that you're asking to come in and figure things out fast. I I have no evidence to, to back up whether or not that's a successful strategy, but it makes a lot of sense if that does work out and they do acclimate well and learn quickly. I think part of it is, of course, who's coaching them, but you can point to it's a bunch of old guys that they brought in to be impactful and them figuring it out faster would make a lot of sense. Yes, it would. And I think there's some value in that too. And like the counter argument or the downside of it all is, is they didn't replace enough of them with those guys. Well, I liked what they did is like they're seemingly still going to count pretty heavily on a true freshman and Perkins at linebacker. And they definitely have some glaring like depth issues. And then the other piece of that too, is like the part I've always wondered with the portal is like, I think it's undoubtedly a positive. They get better or old, excuse me, older, more experienced college football players on their roster. But like, is there any sort of like worry or element of when things go south, these guys are 23, they were only here for a football season anyway, and things start hitting the fan, the sense of togetherness and buy-in when the season's not going the way you want to. Is there any lack of that, or does the maturity counteract that? Or is it guys that are like, oh, I'm going somewhere else in five months anyway to hell with this? Again, not saying one's right, That's one's wrong, question. that would happen. It's just something that fascinates me about that the recruiting that way to fill gaps in the short term. That is a good question. Uh, you, you would hope. Again, if you're looking for the positive angle, is uh, these are a bunch of guys that want to play at the next level, and quitting on film is a good way to to not uh, yes. uh, play at the next level. So, so maybe there's a lot of that. There's you know if they if they do happen to lose a few games, and you're you know Monty Montgomery, it's yeah you know, season's not going the way I wanted to, but I still got to put a bunch of good games on tape to to show to the. Baltimore Ravens because I want them to draft me or, or whatever the case may be. So, so maybe there's an element to that because Kiffin likes to compare college to the NFL. So, so let's compare college to the NFL. The Detroit lions were completely out 
when they beat the Packers in week 17 or week 18 last year. But they all busted their ass and, and played and won that game. A bunch of pros that are collecting salary that are older, um, some of them wanting to put a game on tape so they can get another contract or another team or or whatever. And, and obviously they really like their coach, but you, you get teams that play really, really hard when the playoffs are not happening for them in the final weekend of the NFL season. And so maybe a, a similar element happens here. You've got players on salary now, which is what they are. And, and a bunch of guys that want to put good things on tape uh, for the next level. So uh, worrying about quit is legitimate, but maybe for your guys that you're counting on, uh, they would find that to be a really stupid thing to do considering where they want to be and also what they're currently getting. And I think that's probably ultimately what the answer is in terms of like the older guy that's kind of a hired gun buy-in theory. I mean, look, I mean, this is an example that speaks for everybody. Like things went horribly from the day one of camp for Mason Brooks last year. He was a huge transfer for them that told me in an NIL interview for the Grove Collective, it was like, I'm a hired gun. I'm here to get games on tape, help us win and go to the next level. It did not go even remotely close to the way he thinks, although sidebar, he's having a pretty good camp in Washington and hopefully seemingly signs a way to make a roster and have a role. But like he was still one of those guys that was invested on the sideline and like his entire role on the football team was seemingly on extra point and field goal protection. You know what I mean? And it went horribly for him. And he at least publicly did not lose that buy and seems like a nice kid. Again, that doesn't speak for everybody, but there is evidence to kind of counteract my own theory or just thought that I posed out there. So I'm fascinated by it. I um I'm curious how they'll hold up against the run. You know, they're a linebacker injury or two away from seemingly having some different issues. But the last part on the defensive side of it, because I just find it more interesting, the offensive side, what is the defense going to look like? You know, Golding talked about like his whole thing is trying to figure out what the players do well, not what they can't do. And tailoring, you know, roles and positions and, you know, scheme to fit that. And so I'm curious what this actually looks like in year one, given the hand that he's dealt. I don't think it'll look like exactly like what happened when he was at Alabama, just because I just don't think he has the talent yet yeah. um, and the similar personnel. So I guess that would be another thing that I'm curious to find out in 10 days. Is like, what does this actually look like? Remember Ole Miss in 2021 just all of a sudden came out in a 3-2-6 and they're like, yeah, we saw Iowa State do it. Raz, we didn't really have the depth up front, so we just started doing it and it worked out awesome. Like, what does that yeah. look like? Do you have kind of an oh wow moment week one? Again, Mercer, not the same as playing Louisville and Georgia. Maybe they're bland. Um, you know, intentionally week one, but whenever Georgia Tech Tulane, do you have that wow moment in the first two games of the season of like, wow, this looks different than I thought it would? Yeah, hearing his answer on catering what they do to players and and what they're good at, I I wonder if that also extends into who they're playing as well. Because one thing that that Lane Kiffin and I assume Charlie West Jr. as well, but one thing that Lane Kiffin does really well is they at times this is hyperbolic, but I think you know what I mean. It's like they're running a totally different offense depending on who the opponent is. I mean, there are things that they will do in the in the two-lane game that they may not do again all season. There are things that they'll do against Alabama that they may never do again for the rest of the season because they do things on offense, whether it be personnel or, or who's lining up where or, or specific plays or whatever, that are directly catered to this is the best way to beat them. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder if you're going to see a similar thing from Pete, where sometimes you're going to see a lot of, you know, small linebackers, where where Ladarius Tennyson, when, when he's healthy, 
who they moved to linebacker is playing a bunch of snaps because it's a team that's more sideline to sideline. But when they play Arkansas, and I assume Arkansas is going to want to line up and kind of run right at people, that's a a, a Gene Baptiste game where, where he's in the middle where the, the sideline to sideline speed, which I, I guess is is not exactly a strength of his, is less important because they need somebody that can be physical and play between the guards and make plays on the, the interior. I'd, we didn't see a whole lot of that last year. It was just kind of, here's the defense that they run, I think, at least from my amateur view. Uh, th- this is kind of what they're doing, like the Arkansas game last year, and this is just what they're going to do. And when Arkansas lines up and runs it right at them in a light box, they're not going to change anything, and they're just going to keep getting beat that way. I-, I wonder how much more flexibility based on opponent you're going to see from this team if they even have the personnel, as you mentioned, uh, to do it that way. But uh, it might be a two-way street where they cater to what they have and also cater to what they're facing, as opposed to last year, it was all kind of the same every week. And Kiffin talked about this earlier um, in his press conference on Tuesday. And what I'm curious about is, like, how much can they rotate? Because he was talking about, like, the tempo of offenses and the pace of offenses and just, like, how uh, defenses have figured out, hey, we're just going to rotate dudes all game. That way they're not playing 60, 70 plays and being dead by the fourth quarter, and that's to counteract, you know, the effectiveness of tempo, whereas Ole Miss couldn't do that last year. They had a lot of dudes play a ton of plays just because they had to. Are they at all, across the board, even though I don't necessarily think, like, linebacker would be a good example to use, are they at all better equipped to rotate? Because, like, you would think on the surface, like, at the at the corner position, it's DeAndre Prince and a bunch of transfers. How many of those guys are playable? You know what I mean? They moved Tennyson to linebacker, so it's, you know – I guess Trey Washington, who else am I missing here? Um, Aishim Young and a bunch of new guys in transfers. And like, I'm just curious how many playable dudes they have across the defense to be able to rotate to counteract some of the teams they play when tempo becomes a thing. Yeah. And that's the uh, $2 million question, right? Or at least that's yeah, what no I think kidding. Paid. Uh, but we'll find out in short order. I also wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of growing pains early where you mentioned 2021, where a flip kind of switches at some point near the middle of the season, because even though they're veteran guys, they are new faces. There are a lot of guys that join the team after spring. And and I know they, they never stop practicing anymore. I mean, all summer they're doing work. And, and so it's not like it used to be where you have spring practice and then you can't do anything. And then you come back for two weeks, two days, and then it's football season. It's not like that anymore, but um, I, I can't help but wonder also if there's just going to be a few weeks where, you know, they go to Tuscaloosa and Alabama puts up a bunch of points and yards and then come back to LSU and they do the same thing. And suddenly Arkansas, boom, you shut them down. And where, where they like 2021 just where they gave up a billion points at Arkansas, got what's his name back. Uh, and the then Navy kid, uh, uh, Springer. Yeah. And, and, and then, then boom, like, figured it out. Yeah. Who the hell are these guys? Where did this come from? So like, it's going to be fascinating. And the, the, the luxury I'm genuinely they excited to watch this team. Yeah, that, they're that, that, interesting. Good, bad, I don't know, but they will be interesting. I, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and say this team will not be boring. That will be my uh, hot take of the day. Um, We kind of covered everything that I'm fascinated by from, like, specifically an Ole Miss standpoint. I guess the one thing on the offensive side of the football is, like, seemingly Aiden Williams sounds like he's looking the part, but just the fact that they're heavily relying on a true freshman. I'm curious to see what that and the tight end thing looks like. Like, the – the curious case of Michael Trigg, as I think I dubbed it in a newsletter the other day, what actually happens there. I think Priest Corn is going to play a huge role in the offense. But I think Jackson Dart, 
benefited from having a mostly healthy Jonathan Mingo last year. But outside of that, it was kind of a little bit of Malik Heath. And then like, there was no real seemingly like sturdy connection. And I'm just curious if his weapons will have improved going into this year, as opposed to last year, just because they do have some very intriguing options from priest corn to the true freshman Williams to, you know, Braywin Brown did a presser the other day and talked about how he's had to be patient and, you know, a couple of other guys that have kind of been, you know, on the cusp of being promising that are really going to have to put it together. If Ole Miss is going to have any sort of real threat um, down the field and at the receiver thing, because that has for better, for worse, been a weakness since Kiffin got here outside of, you know, Elijah Moore. Yeah. What about Trey Harris too? Exactly. Trey Harris. Um, that's another one I left out. Like, what does that transfer look like? Like how, how quickly does he make an impact? Um, Jaywin Knox apparently still exists is on the roster. He's become a bit of a running joke on this podcast, but you know, Braywin Brown, um, I'm trying to think of uh, missing four or five names, but it just can't come to me off the top of my head. But like, I'm curious to see if any one of those guys actually turns into a consistently productive sec receiver. And like, does any of them become be above average? You know, Ole Miss hasn't had a really like, game record difference maker at receiver since Elijah Moore, unless I'm omitting someone. Um, no, because Mingo wasn't that, although he's, he's doing well at Panthers game. It's obviously the abilities there, but, but he wasn't Could have been that had he stayed healthy throughout his career. Yeah. Heath was, was good. And he's going to make the Packers. It looks like he's having a good camp and, and doing the little things, right? Like blocking defensive backs, uh, on a run play 10 yards down the field and then getting them out of bounds. And then they're, swinging and punching him in the face. So he's get not only is he humiliating a DB and blocking him out of bounds, he's getting a 15-yard penalty on top of that. That's the Did kind of kick stuff him and run away. Roster. That's the real question. Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't kick him and run away. Good At for him. That's uh, growth. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, they haven't had that. And, um, man, if they can get that from anybody. Like, I, I like Jordan Watkins a lot. Uh, I think that that he's an overlooked guy going into this season. But is he a game-breaker? I, I guess we'll have to see. But if they can get – that I mean, I, I go back to uh, Kenny Yaboa. So, so Kenny Yaboa also had the luxury of Elijah Moore. Uh, so, so that helps. But I, I don't mean to sound negative, but he was just okay. He was it, awesome it, for four games and rode the reputation of being it, good. It wasn't great at the end, that's for sure. No, uh, but like he, he's talented. Like he, he obviously, I think he's still at Jets camp. So, so clearly there is there's talent and ability there. But if you told me Kenny Aboa was a great tight end, I wouldn't agree with you. He was good. He, he was he had some athletic ability. Like like he could run, he could catch, he could do some things. Couldn't block. But that offense with yeah, it was a, he was pretty good at tight end was special with how Kiffin was able to use him and, and get mismatches and then open the field up for Elijah Moore, which you don't really need help to get him open, but still, I mean, how threatening and dynamic that offense was with a tight end that is scratching and clawing to, to stay on a practice squad or, or barely make a roster. Now, if Prescorn is what people think that he is and can be, what will that do to that offense? Because they didn't have that last year. They didn't have that at all last year. Not anywhere close to it. They they had Casey Kelly, a former walk-on, who had was inconsistent catching the football and was playing hurt last year when he was on the field. And then without him, and Michael Trigg wasn't around, they had to put Mingo at tight end because they had no other options. So this was a team that was bad in short yardage, bad in the red zone. And, and I, I wonder if not having... 
a useful tight end was a major contributor to that. And I wonder how 2020 this offense is going to look knowing that they have not only competency, but like really high upside at tight end. At least that's what everybody that's been watching campus said about it. Yeah. And what, who did Kiffin have his last year at FAU? And that offense was great. And they got the, um, he got the Ole Miss job. It was Harrison Bryant, the Mac who I believe is still on the Cleveland Browns roster, obviously wins the award for the best tight end in the country. I don't put too much legitimacy in that. Uh, ever since Evan Ingram is not a finalist. I was like, what are we doing here guys? I don't even care about awards, but like, why are you doing this yourselves? But like seemingly the best versions of Kiffin's offense have had at least some sort of threat at tight end. I mean, OJ Howard was kind of a bit of a mystery from the entire time he was at Alabama. But man, when that guy got the football, it scared the living shit out of you um, if you were an opponent. And so it seems like he has the pieces to have that component over the middle of the field again. And I don't know what to make of Michael Trigg, but I think Caden Priestcorn, how he came on this podcast and said himself that he describes one of his best characteristics characteristics as going up and getting the football he's also 6'5 250 that helps and I think you know in a perfect world if Michael Trigg was you know not in the proverbial doghouse and everything was fine with him and just after a a red shirt freshman year or whatever he was last year you know the expectation was he puts it together this year the best version probably includes some two tight end stuff because they do play the same position but in very different ways even though they do similar things like the same things well which I know sounds yeah stupid but like you could play both of them but i i i have a lot of faith in the pre-scorn aspect of it i just am not sure at this point if it's realistic at all to have any sort of realistic expectations i just said that word like twice of michael trigg this year i just don't know what to make of it until proven otherwise yeah you got to be proven otherwise because all it is is that p word potential and that's all it is but if you're still having issues um if you're getting kicked out of practice and things like that, apparently it, it's gotten better since then, but uh, still, yeah, no expectations whatsoever. Uh, what I'm most impressed about with, with Priestcorn, and I think it goes back to our conversation about Kiffin feeling more comfortable this year versus last year, uh, a married guy with apparently a child, which God bless him. I have a hard enough time just balancing like a, a job, a, a low pressure job. Uh, with with my son, I couldn't imagine being a, a college athlete uh, trying to balance a, a wife and a child like that as well. But he's it's basically he's, you playing college football. I couldn't imagine. Uh, so so he's a, a better man than me, I guess. But be, being married, having a child, and then being on the team for a few months and being selected to leadership council, and I know that's like a, it's kind of a cheesy thing to talk about, like oh that guy's a great leader. But but seriously, that that is so valuable where you can sign a guy with his ability that can open up an offense that also leaves an impression on teammates so strong after such a short time that he is selected to be the forward-facing leader of that team. I mean, that matters. That that really, really matters. And I think I think it was today or maybe yesterday. I was in the carpool line. Again, I, I had Neil and Chase on, and um, they brought that up that a year ago. Did they have a Caden Priestcorn on the team? Maybe, but did they? No, they definitely didn't. That I mean, matters. Casey Kelly and Kyron Heath. Am I missing who someone else who was at tight end last year? No, but I mean, not even just the, the tight end component, but a, oh, a you're guy talking that about was the that leadership impressionable of a leader. Yeah, that, that would come in so quickly and, and kind of own a, a team in, in such a way like that. And you're getting the same returns from Jackson Dart, uh, that, that Dart has assumed a leadership role that he didn't have a year ago. I mean, it's it's different now, or at least it can be different. 
adversity is going to come. They're going to lose a game. They're, they're, they're going to lose to one of Alabama or LSU, and that's early in the season. I, I think it's going to happen. I think they're going to beat one of those two. But again, maybe I'm just looking at it through, through a lens. I think they're going to win one of those two games. Don't ask me why. I just think they will. Oh, okay. I think they will. One of those two, either at Alabama or LSU at home. I think they're going to win one of those two games. But it, it, it just sounds like that was something in hindsight that was severely lacking. And now they're getting it at multiple different places, including with their returning quarterback, but also with guys that they didn't have on the team a year ago. It's it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. And he's a good dude. I've been around him, uh, that being uh, preschool a little bit. He came on the show and I've kind of been in the same vicinity as him one or two other times. Seems like a good dude. Like you mentioned, he's, like, he's a hell of a lot older. Like in terms of like the headspace, I can't imagine a larger contrast between him and Michael Trigg, which just kind of makes the whole college football thing. And you have a 23 year old and, you know, a 19 year old still trying to figure out and Trigg just kind of funny, but I agree. I think he'll add value if nothing else in that regard. And I think he'll also be pretty awesome catching the football. And uh, I don't know, they're going to be a fascinating team. It's going to be Super interesting to watch. I guess the last thought on the old Miss piece of it, I know I've said this before, um, talking about Jackson Dart, but everyone talks about like Dart as if like all right, they know what they have in him and like could they upgrade or is he still the best guy for the job? Jackson Dart's played one full season of college football. He played like a handful of games in an absolute mess of a situation at USC. Yeah, people are disingenuous about his time at USC. Yeah, he, he wasn't does. the starter at USC. No, he wasn't. And he had to go in because of injuries. And right after Clay Helton gets fired, I mean, I wrote about all of it last year, but like you said, it was just kind of a mess. And then he gets hurt again. And like, it's, it was just bizarre. And then all of a sudden all that happens and then he transfers and he's already gone through spring at a second program. And he ended spring two months at his second program before his 19th birthday, the kid turned 20 in I think May of this year, if my memory serves me correctly. Like, again, I'm not saying Jackson Dart is going to turn into a world beater. I think he's a superbly talented kid, but his career path is just very fascinating to me because he's a dude that blew up very, very quickly, literally after one nationally televised game, his senior year during the COVID recruiting cycle, got thrust in the fire at USC, got basically kind of ousted in a game of musical chairs that were completely out of his control. And then finally gets one full season of college football under his belt and everyone like acts like he's a bit of a finished product. And I just, I don't really understand that line of thinking because he just hasn't played that much football yet and had any sort of stability to go along with it. I mean, we were texting about it the other night is like, if there's an angle for a season two Jackson Dart story is like what he sought after at Ole Miss still hasn't happened yet. And maybe that gets fulfilled this year. And that's kind of stability and trust. For and I'm speaking on a general term. I'm not saying he and Kiffin like hate each other or anything, but like he's still kind of seeking what he wanted to find at Ole Miss. And I think that kind of speaks to the fact that I don't think the whole like story ceiling is done with him yet. Yeah, no, and nor should it be. Uh, but that step does have to happen, though. I, I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah, breaking news: to more to Here's why I get paid the big bucks, everybody. Uh, they've got to get better at quarterback if they want to win more games than they did a year ago. Ooh, I hope you guys were sitting down for that one. Because, it's the uh, perfect middle ground. He wasn't the reason they sucked, but he also didn't elevate them on a regular basis to not suck at times when things aren't going off. That makes any sense. And I think he's got the ability to do that. Some people, uh, Ole Miss fans that, that I interact with, uh, don't see what I see. I, I think that, the, that there is a ceiling there that is so much higher than, than where he currently has been, at least from what we've seen. 
Um, the toughness is there. Apparently, the leadership has come together. The physical tools are there. He, you know, he didn't have the strongest arm uh, that you'll ever see. He doesn't have the strongest arm on the team currently, I don't believe. But it's strong enough. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's an arm that can play at the next level. If he gets everything else figured out, cuts down on mistakes, sees the field better, which, uh, again, apparently is things that have happened, then they can win one of those two games that I think they're going to win. This can be an eight, nine win team and and they could be a fringe access bowl team or or go play at the next best thing. What is that? The Outback? You know, they can have that signature win. They can beat Mississippi State. They can take a, a huge step forward as a program and set themselves up for a year in 2024 where people are looking at them as a playoff contender in the expanded playoff. It, all of those things are absolutely on the table and, and it's mostly up to Jackson Dart to to, to be that guy for all the changes that have happened elsewhere and all the, the, the addition at tight end and, and Pete Golding and all the defensive pieces, you said it, if they, if they don't get the quarterback elevating them, there is a ceiling that is much lower than if they can. And again, I'm somewhat halfway educatedly reading through the lines here. I don't even think educatedly is a word, but we're going to make it one for the sake of today's podcast. I think the idea when they brought in Sanders and Walker Howard, look, the Walker Howard thing made sense. I have it on pretty good authority. It made sense to uh, the team Dart as well. Um, but the Sanders thing was kind of weird. And it was like, a, like, there was that idea of like, are they just going to use this to push Dart slash screw with his head? And again, I'm coloring in between the lines here. It does not sound like that the mind games that could have been played that maybe we were kind of projecting might be played in terms of like, you know, not just pushing him, but just the uncertainty and kind of the illusion of instability and it not being his team and him being the guy. It doesn't sound like that's how camp played out. And he's probably comp more confident because of it. If again, if that makes any sense at all. No, it does. It, it absolutely does. And, and you would, you know, I, I was, I was hoping uh, that was the case, uh, frankly, from, from Lane Kiffin. you're going to bring Sanders in, uh, uh, a charade could have fractured a lot. It could have been a circus. It could have been, and to hear that it that it wasn't the case that apparently it's, as you say, been pretty transparent. Um, that that's good to hear because, man, you you could so quickly fracture a locker room if you have an incumbent starter that the team apparently very much really likes, and if the coach is screwing with him, you could create division that that could lead to losses. And and to hear that that's not going on is uh, should be encouraging. As we kind of wrap up the Ole Miss portion of this uh, this thing, I'm always curious to get your take on the state side of it. I haven't kept up super closely in Mississippi State camp, but it does sound like, and this kind of naturally happens because you know when a team like Mississippi State, that's a veteran team with a lot of returning players, but uncertainty head coach, they get pegged last in the SEC West. People kind of take what's become a joke of those rankings that they do at uh, SEC media days. And if there's a kind of a plucky team with some talent, they got picked to finish six or seven, their respective division that now becomes the new team that everybody's bullish on. And that seemingly sort of become the case with some, I would say, you know, national to regional media figures, talking heads, whatever you want to call them. Not that that's an insult by any stretch of the imagination. And I've kind of found myself trending the same way when looking at their roster and what they return. Yes. There's a ton of uncertainty. Is this Zach Arnett ready to be a head coach? I seemingly like, well, even though I don't know a ton about the offensive coordinator, but his track record and kind of what he brings, the quite the stark transition from the air raid. But I guess to wrap all of up these rambling thoughts, it was just kind of 
I find myself being a little bit more bullish on them than maybe I was a few months ago. Have you sensed that being the general consensus surrounding state? Yeah, and they have not had near as many open opportunities as Ole Miss has. They just, for example, they've had two close scrimmages. Uh, oh, apparently, really? the, the the defense won the first one. You want to <laughs> guess who won the second one? The offense. The offense. Yes, uh, imagine that. But no, you're right. There, there's. There's reason for state fans to be optimistic. You have a veteran quarterback, um, offensive line, even though it's a different scheme, uh, should be pretty good. Uh, they, they like what they have at running back. Uh, they lost three of their top four receivers uh, from last year, but th they feel good about the receiver room, or at least they should. Uh, Griffin's back. He's he's explosive. Uh, the front six should be very, very good. Uh, one of the best duo uh, of linebackers, in the SEC, you're going to see more traditional fronts. Uh, they're they're going to do some four two stuff, as opposed to the three three five, which is what got Arnett the job. Uh, it's why Mike Leach hired him. But they're they're going to get it away from that, at least according to Zach Arnett, and do more traditional even fronts is the the phrase he used. There are questions though. Secondary, they're replacing their entire secondary basically, including the uh, first round pick at, at defensive back that was an island. I mean, it was – you don't throw it to Emmanuel Forbes because he's either going to pick it off or your guy's not catching it. I mean, he, he was elite last year and, and kind of flew under the radar in the SEC, but an elite defensive back, an island defensive back, and he's gone. Safeties, gone. I mean, re again, basically replacing the entire secondary paired with all of, all of the new uh, that you mentioned. They're an intriguing football team. They're really interesting. They have eight home games, and and some people think that this is a benefit. I actually don't agree that this is a good thing their four road games are all what you would consider toss-up games they're playing south carolina that would be a toss-up game teams that you would think are on a similar plane but that's in columbia and i don't think that's a good thing they're in fayetteville they're in college station i don't like that aspect of their schedule in fact at I auburn think they're at auburn which would be a, an extremely important game uh, for both, if they're going to meet expectations, and and of course the Hugh Freeze Mississippi State element uh, paired with that, but I would much rather, if I were them, play Alabama and LSU on the road and have South Carolina and Texas A and M at home. But what do I know? I, I I guess that's a stupid thought on my part, at least according to some. I know what so you mean, though. You get a year where you have this weird year where you get eight home games, but two of them are Alabama and LSU, and like if you right. get one on the road and have like eight reasonably winnable home games then it like that eight home game aspect looks a lot more realistic i get what you're saying because Ole Miss is playing georgia this year and and i know some people might disagree with this but i would much rather play georgia and athens if you're going to play them just have it be on the road their roster is just better than everybody else's and instead you get arkansas at home you know what i mean it, it just it i would much rather play arkansas and oxford and georgia in athens than not that you can make this trade anyway but then Arkansas and Fayetteville and Georgia and, and Oxford. And so I think the schedule is actually a, a little bit to their detriment. Um, Arizona in week two is an interesting game. I think too many people are just kind of putting W next to that one. They have a better roster than Arizona. At least they should. But Jaden Delora was really good by the end of last year. And he kind of gave them fits in, in their game out in Tucson a year ago. So a lot of new no way to know what it's going to look like in, in, until we actually see it. Um, they are fighting so hard, uh, the, the media anyway, are fighting so hard against the idea that the offense is going to be different. 
And it, it kind of cracks me up. Well, they're still going to be in shotgun most of the time. Well, yeah, everybody's in shotgun most of the time. Doesn't mean the systems are the same. Wait, I didn't but, know this was a thing. It, oh, it's your a thing. It's not going to be. It's not going to be different when you go from like. Oh no, not that much raid. different. But that's the. Oh, it's not going to be that much different. They're still going to have air raid concepts. Everybody has air raid concepts in their <laughs> offense now. I mean, come on, if if they take five percent of their snaps under center, that means they are taking. Will Rogers did not take a snap under center at Mississippi State. So even if it's 5% and they run 90 plays and four of them are under center, that's new. They've not had a tight end under Mike Leach. That's new. They're going to run the football a lot more. It's new. And so they're they're fighting against, oh, it's not going to be any different. It's not going to be any different. But also last year's offense wasn't good, and this one's going to be good. But it's not any different. It's just these conflicting narratives. It's okay that it's different. You you Frankly, yeah, I just I, I don't mean to sound disrespectful. That's a wild they, thing to come out of a storyline. I never, I never knew that was a thing. I just assumed it would be different. It's Mike Leach versus anyone else. Like honestly, in transition. That they weren't good offensively last year. They weren't. They they won games on defense and special teams mostly. At least the the close games, the tight ones. I mean, did anybody watch the Egg Bowl and come away super impressed with Will Rogers in that offense? Did anybody come away impressed that you shouldn't have if you did? Jackson Dart was the significantly better quarterback on that field that night. His team just lost the game. But that was that was weekly with Will, with Will Rogers. A, a change in philosophy should be something that like you're, you're encouraged by, not that you're fighting against. Uh, just because, again, just because they're running shotgun doesn't mean it's the same. And that's, that's this weird thing is, well, they're not going to go under center that much. Okay. You think Andy Reid's running the Mike Leach air raid? Patrick Mahomes doesn't take snaps under center. Right. Right. <laughs> that doesn't, you know, whether you're putting your hand on the center's ass or in shotgun, that is not equate to equivalency of offenses. Uh, I guess last thing on kind of state in general is just does Will Rogers start every game, assuming he's healthy, not like injury, not in the equation here for this question. Does he make it 12 games as the Mississippi State starter? Yes, because, well, Yes, uh, because I don't think they have any better options. Uh, and Barbet, uh, yesterday, I believe, is, is when he said this. They're going to have um, Rodgers and Mike Wright on the field at the same time. So they're going to use Mike sound? Wright as more than just a quarterback. Uh, they're they're going to use him as a, a guy that they get the ball in space to because he's a dynamic athlete. So – Okay, again, just reading the tea leaves here, maybe a little bit of 2019 Ole Miss vibes here. Mike Wright, very good athlete. Kid can move, running the football, Will Rogers statue. If this whole thing of they're not maybe throwing the football doesn't go so well, the offense is kind of stagnant. He comes from App State, which seemingly is somewhat of a run-first offensive concept. I will admit I did not watch a ton of App State games last year. Probably caught him four or five times uh, in some Sun Belt, Fun Belt action. Who's to say if they struggle early on in the year, they don't go to the mobile athletic quarterback and become a little bit of a run first offense with a guy that can throw that, that, that seems And they, they love their running back room too. Uh, and they, they think it's three or four deep. They really like what they have there at running back. I mean, uh, they, they bring in a freshman who who's going to be now second uh, on the depth chart and a Penn state transfer is going to be third possibly, uh, but, but they love what they have there. Uh, How does know, that translate might... to a guarantee that Real Rogers is there for the lack of a better options? And I'm not like throwing back what you said. I get it. I would. I would assume that. I assume that would probably just, be your answer. I saw that's... Mike Wright throw the football. That, that's how. Um, it, that's just, fair. Not, 
Um, not, not particularly good at it, but hearing him say that today was um, um, was interesting. If, if nothing else, I do think Will Rogers' replacement is not on campus right now. I think they're going to have to portal after he leaves this year, and uh, he could stay if he wanted to. But according to Haydad, this is his last year, so uh, state fans enjoy him while you have him because he will leave uh, and, and test the NFL waters, and and that's it after this season. Which I also again found. Interesting, but I I don't know. I mean, until we see it, it's hard to know what they're going to do. And I mean, we haven't seen Zach Arnett make a decision like that before. We don't know what he's going to act like. We, we know what Lane Kiffin's going to act like, generally speaking, if a quarterback throws six interceptions in a game. We have, we, we know what Lane Kiffin will do given past precedent. We have no idea if Zach Arnett will, will take a three turnover game from Will Rogers in a loss to Arizona in week two. We have no idea how he's going to handle that. We have no idea what Kevin Barbet wants to do. But but I do know different offenses, if the the Will Rogers of the end of last season shows up again for Mississippi State, they will underachieve. He's got to be better. And if he's not, maybe they do experiment with the runner. Do we have any hot seat candidates? Uh, kind of last thought here in the Jimbo. SEC this year. It's Jimbo, right? Well, yeah, I would say that would be number one, and I don't know who else fills out the bracket. I want. I mean, Eli Drinkwitz has a losing record, so you would think that that would make sense, but he just signed a $2 million raise in a contract extension. And seemingly, I get Drinkwitz is not everybody's favorite guy. I think we talked about this uh, when I checked in with you at SEC Media Days. He just seems harmless, like a dork to me. But it's seemingly recruiting pretty well, and that can be – a real, particularly in this modern day and age of college football, if the on-field results aren't terrible but aren't great, that can be something that gives you a a, a little bit of a longer leash otherwise than the on-field results. Didn't they just sign one of the top uh, yeah. defensive line recruits in the nation? And he's he's had a pretty good recruiting classes. Like, that to me would make me think that, like, yeah, he's probably a little bit on the hot seat. They can't be terrible this year. But, I mean, if they go 7-5 and five or whatever and he's building a pretty good recruiting class, the odds of them canning him are pretty thin. But that's certainly a candidate. How about Sam Pittman? Has the shine wore off of the good old boy Sam Pittman storyline? Like I or I say storyline, his persona and the fact that Arkansas was so bad under Chad Morris, so bad that the fact that during that COVID year, I'll never forget Arkansas went three and seven that year, and Shane and uh, Sam Pittman, mostly rightfully so, I'm not even poking fun at it, was like, holy cow, look what this guy who we didn't think is qualified has done. He won three games, and they were competitive, and a lot of them got screwed at that game at Auburn. But just the sheer fact that they were competent, he kind of rode that. They had a nine-win season in 2021 that could have really easily been a 10 or 11-win season, Ole Miss game namely. But they go seven and six last year. If he disappoints with a veteran quarterback in K.J. Jefferson, where does Arkansas go from here? Because the disconnect of what Arkansas thinks it is in football versus what it actually is is interesting to me, and I wonder if it would prompt a sudden decision as far as a coaching change. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, Arkansas is – I don't think this is being talked about enough. So so Sam Pittman w- was brought in as kind of like a figurehead. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. He doesn't have a system. Lane Kiffin could lose an offense coordinator every year, and, and it's still, still fine. fine because it's Lane Kiffin. Kirby Smart hired Mike Bobo, which, which is so interesting. But you know, at least defensively, they're going to be fine. It's like, like he can survive a, a, a bad hire on another side of the ball because – He's got a system. Yes. And it's going to work. 
Nick Saban's kind of an outlier here, which I Nick Saban has this, that that's a bad example. Never mind. But I know what Nick, you mean though, but he's still a defensive guy. He's still a defensive guy. And, and but Pippen Sam Pittman is a line coach. And and has seemingly no system that, that he's coordinator dependent. And he lost both of his. Both of his highly respected and accomplished and decorated and sought after coordinators are gone. And good and who, hires that helped him through those early years. Very and who and who he replaced him with on paper, and that's all it is. Seem like lesser hires than the ones that he just lost. And I don't know if enough people are talking about that with Arkansas. I mean, there, there's a chance that there is a step back, and it's not like they were particularly good a year ago. I mean, Ole Miss fans, if you only watched Arkansas once, you you think they're the greatest team on earth, but that, that wasn't a good Arkansas team last year. And KJ being hurt contributed to that uh, a good degree. But if there's any step back at all, how how much longer are they going to put up with that? Because they've been bad for quite some time. And teams with what you would think are have lesser resources than them keep beating them for recruits and on the field. It's fascinating because they bring in a dude that uh, was his name, Travis Williams, who was at UCF prior who's certainly lesser experience and then so can i ask what dan enos did other than work at alabama as the qb coach has done to kind of become that hot buzz name as far as a coordinator like i'm not saying he's a terrible coach i just don't understand the dan enos thing like he was a pretty good head coach at central michigan for a few years and then kind of left to take a better coordinator job but like what why is dan Enos like i don't understand why is dan enos a thing for for the lack of a better phrase like what what is his calling card that makes him awesome that's a good question cuz i, I, I quite <laughs> I don't, don't have know an answer for it. i mean like, i read i read cbs's sec preview today where uh they had listed among their teams that are overrated uh south carolina who is not ranked and among their teams that are underrated, uh, LSU, who is preseason number five. Uh, but, but yeah. But who's running that, that list? But in that, Barrett Salee, who I like a lot, uh, talked about how uh, the Enos offense is going to unlock KJ Jefferson and, and what does that Sanders. Mean? I don't know what that means either, but it's like Kendall Bryles versus Enos. And you're telling me that the, the, the latter is going to be the one that unlocks those playmakers and and, and not the former. And I like KJ okay, Jefferson but... It was mostly a health thing. It wasn't like he was limited. Like, I thought he's a pretty damn good player, at least someone who was fun to watch. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I've just resigned myself to the fact that guys like that, so he seems like a nice guy. I don't pretend to know him very well. They're just content creators. They're not actually keeping up with stuff. He's the dude that had to take about Ole Miss being explosive in 2020 with uh, John Rice Plumley at quarterback. It's like, dude, have you read anything about what's happened in that camp? So I don't know. What about, I'm trying to think of one more. So, uh, how about the Billy Napier? Not a hot seat guy, but man, that needs to go better than it did in year one. It does. And now it's something that is totally not his fault, right? But, but Jaden Rashada won the job at Arizona State. So if, if Graham Mertz is bad and Rashada is good right away, he is going to be unfairly blamed for for that. When he didn't promise Rashada $13 million, at least I don't think he did. He may have, but um, he's recruiting well enough to where I think that nothing that happens this season save abject disaster cost him his job, right? 
I mean, you can really put yeah, a stain yeah, no, on your job safe. if you're Florida. If you go two and Q with him after Mullen failed, who was an accomplished coach in the SEC before he took your job. I'm starting to wonder if Florida has a lot of uh, um, undue credit for being a good job. Yeah, what it, what it was in 20, 2002 to 2012 is that different because what uh, what makes a good program has changed since then. I'm kind of with you. I don't know. And is it, or is there success because they, they had Steve Spurrier who brought South Carolina to heights that they've never been to before and urban Meyer, who has been a winner everywhere, or did they have that success because they're great jobs because urban Meyer won a championship at Ohio state was great at Utah, great at Bowling Green. Spurrier was again, great at South Carolina heights that they've never been to before. Mullen was very, very good at Mississippi State, failed at Florida. Muschamp failed at Florida. Uh, maybe, I, I have this conversation a lot. I, I do the same thing with Texas and Texas A&M. Oh, these are great jobs, all these resources. It's the best. They're a top five job in college football. Then why don't they win like one? I, I, part of me wonders if the gap between jobs that people think is large is really not big at all. Because if you were a Florida fan, you would rather have Ole Miss's success in the playoff era than yours. At least I think. Uh, they went to I an SEC totally championship, but but that was tainted because Will Greer got caught with PEDs. Yep, and like the in the and they finally fell victim to their own inflated expectations with the Urban Meyer thing. And this is funny. This comes up on the heels of the Urban Meyer documentary. But like Will Muschamp's second year, they went eleven and two. I don't think they ended up going to the SEC title game. I think they lost a tiebreaker to someone. I can't remember who it was. They go to eleven and two. He's fired two years later. They went four and eight, and he was like six and five. I can't necessarily blame him for that. But like Jim McElwain, I get it. Things did not go well beyond all on the field, but the guy won the East twice, and then was fired when they went three and four into that third season. Like they kind of derailed any chance they had at like stability and letting a guy get you know ingrained and start building something. Seemingly with other factors at play too inflated expectations of what their program was during the urban Meyer era, which is just natural when you have that type of run of success, which I guess is kind of the fascinating piece of the whole Jim Mac, uh, Jim McElwain, Jesus, um, the whole, um, holy cow. Why am I blanking on the coach's name? I just said it five seconds ago. Florida's head coach. Currently Napier. Yeah. Napier, sorry, I don't. I just had a total brain fart for a second. Why, like, will they let Napier? Will they allow him the patience to kind of build his own thing? Because Wake Weldon is a big Napier guy. He believes in the way he recruits and what he did at ULL was being impressive. Last year didn't go great. You mentioned the Mertz versus Rashada, kind of weird dynamic there. Did they allow him the patience if they're not great this year? I don't think they're firing by any stretch, but you can also not fire a guy and also set him up for failure, a la Brian Harson, even though they tried very hard before last year. You know what I mean? That's going to be a fascinating dynamic. Yeah, and but here's the thing. I think they're going to beat um, Utah in week one. So I think so, too. I would did agree. you see what Whittingham did? Do, do you know uh, their um, their current quarterback situation at Utah? So I read about this the other day. They've lost their top two quarterbacks in camp. Is that did I read that? So, I have so that Cam, so Cam Rising tore his ACL in the Rose Bowl, and he he's a veteran. I mean, he's played at Utah since 1962. A fun and, football player to watch too. Tough as shit. That's one yeah. of the things I always take away from watching that kid. Maybe it's yeah. the long hair and the fact that he sticks people. But I'm a Cam Rising fan at a distance, and he has yet to be cleared. 
for contact yet. Now he's practicing, but not every day, but he's not cleared for contact yet. And so their quarterback room was a redshirt freshman, the presumed backup, which would be the presumed starter if rising can't go. And then after him, a walk-on and they had a scrimmage, I think two weeks ago or last weekend where, so this would be two weekends ago now. So 10 days ago where everybody was live everybody including the quarterbacks was live and the starter got sent to the hospital he was hit so hard and they didn't specify what actually sent him to the hospital but he had to go to the hospital and and was released i believe the next day and is not practicing as of the end of last week and so cam rising can't go it is a walk-on starting against florida because their coach decided to let their current starting quarterback get smoked live in a scrimmage. That did not know that part. That is absolutely wild. I think Kyle Whittingham is probably one of the more underrated coaches in college. He football. Is. Been there a long time, won a ton of games at a program that did not have a ton of history, but that's one of those is like, that's that contradicts like everything you would think about him. They're just like, hey, why would you do that? What, what, did we have a quote? I may have to go look this up when we get done recording. I, I would have to go find the reasoning. Like, has he been asked why he did that? That is just so like outside the box of what you would think a smart football coach would do. My question would be, would be like, why did he do that? And does he explain why he did that? I'd be fascinated to find that clip if it's available. What, like, what the hell? Like, you lost your starter and you're like, let's get the second stream guy. Let's make sure he gets his head taken off once or twice. It, I, I can't remember why exactly that happen? what it was, but he did have a, a quote about uh, toughness. And that that he wanted his team to if uh, something like that, yeah. But so if Rising can't go, yeah, Florida's going to win that game either way. I think I, I I'm really like Austin Armstrong. I, I think despite Lane Kiffin's jokes about Florida's lack of scoring in their spring game, I think defensively they're going to be pretty darn good. And for I've got Florida plus seven and a half on uh, dinner from Haydad, so I got a lot riding on that game. Ooh, hey, Dad, not confident. Not confident at all. He's giving me the seven and a half, too. Gave me the hook. Richard offered him, and I don't know why Richard was offering him anything. Or Richard <laughs> was like, hey, Dad, you're going to give him the hook? And I was like, hey, shut up, man. Yes, he's going to give me the hook, seven and a half, and he gave it to me. That is totally unlike Richard to stir the pot. Last, last thing before I let you go. Um, whose season does first year Hugh Freeze ruin? <laughs> Who do they beat that wrecks their year? Um, Auburn's. Oh, you're not high on him. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, let's see. So, hmm. <laughs> I can offer you a Arkansas in Fayetteville. Yeah, because that could seemingly come at a very crucial point in For Sam Pittman's season and yeah. really twist the tide of that. Because he would have already played LSU and Alabama both on the road by that point, A&M in Dallas, and they're in Oxford, and they're in Gainesville before that point. There could be four or five losses for the Razorbacks before that game. The the only other one I can come up with, because like Ole Miss, they played them August 21st. No matter what state Ole Miss is in going to that game, I cannot, and again, I say this in August and I'll be sound like an idiot with the way the season plays out 
in October. I just cannot see that being a linchpin swing game for Ole Miss. Yes, it's a very, very, very important game that Ole Miss needs to win, but I cannot see that being a kind of a make or break for their season type of game just with the way the two schedules line up. The only other candidate... I yeah, can... and you've got to love where Auburn is on your schedule for Ole Miss. I mean, you have a bye week, yeah. and they're in Baton Rouge. Oh, for sure. I think that's a great point. I didn't actually know they were in Baton Rouge the week before. Um, yeah. Well, hell, I guess I'm looking at it. The only other candidate I'll give you, because even if they go upset LSU, LSU's kind of in a weird place in year two, where it's like, if they didn't win the West, it's not a huge disappointment by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But the other candidate is, how about... The one, two, three, fourth weekend of the season, if they go win in College Station and that starts the whole Jimbo, um, what's going on here? He just lost to first-year head coach Hugh Freeze. That would be my other candidate for it. It would be Texas A&M in week four in College Station. If Freeze goes and wins that game, which he's been known to do from time to time, to win a game that he's not supposed to win, after think about entering that game, it's New Mexico, at Miami and ULM. So let's just say NM's 3-0, they're feeling pretty good about themselves, and they lose to first-year Hugh Freeze before having Arkansas and Dallas, and then Alabama and at Tennessee would be their next three games after that. Things could go real squirrely from there. That would be my other candidate for Hugh Freeze ruining someone's year. Yeah, and he's going to win that game uh, after losing to Cal in Week 2. <laughs> so <laughs> That would be perfect. So I am Would you be surprised by... if they went to Berkeley and lost that game? I don't think I would be. No, because that's kind of the Hugh Freeze experience. And so it's it's going to be a fascinating year. He is Michael Borky, Sports Talk Mississippi, 3 to 6 every uh, Monday through Friday. I appreciate the time, my man. We'll check in with you at some point during the season. But, uh, hey, this shit's around the corner. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man, anytime. And, by the way, uh, you know the, the fall wedding debate always happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, October 14th. If you're going to get married, get married that weekend here. Uh, no I Ole actually Miss, got invited no state, to two weddings. No that Southern weekend. Miss. Yeah, no Ole Miss, no state, no Southern Miss that weekend. You can literally just have a fall wedding in Mississippi and not disrupt anybody's team anyway. Now, guys are going to still want to watch college football, but not the same. Yeah, I got invited to two weddings that weekend. I'm sitting there like, damn, I'm popular. And then I looked at the schedule. I was like, no, I'm not. Everybody's just pitching holing this weekend. <laughs> it's one. So, no fall weddings. Please stop scheduling them. He is Michael Borky. We'll talk to you soon, dude. See you, man.